Welcome to episode 102 of the Martin Bailey Photography Podcast. Today we have a special treat for you. I'm joined by two of the members, uh, prominent members of the MBP community, and of course, amazing photographers. First, we have Forrest Tanaka. Hello, everyone from very hot California. And also Evan Solbo. Hello in not so hot Norway. <laughs> so welcome, guys, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, especially Forrest, I know that it's early for you. Yes, um, very. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's a, a bit of a pain. Uh, this is really the only way that we could get um, me and you, and then. Uh, you know, on the phone at the same time, but also allow Evan to join, and, it, and I, I'm really pleased that we did it that way. So a little bit uh, of a pain, but you know, thanks for doing that, and thanks for giving up part of your Sunday afternoon, Evan. No problem. Okay, so we're we're going to actually do this today, pretty similar to a Focus Ring podcast, um, and that's on the Photocast Network. Uh, that I sometimes join in and basically uh, if you haven't picked check that out actually look in uh, go to photocastnetwork.com or search in iTunes for that and it, we've just released episode 8 I wasn't involved in that one but uh, if you want to take a listen to that please do and so we were going to have another member with us today but uh, I, I think that um, one of the guys was saying earlier they're probably lost in the mountains so we're going to have, just have the three of us, and Forrest is going to talk about his digital workflow using a Mac. Evan is going to talk about when do you not take the shot or stop shooting. And I'm going to answer a question that I received recently from a listener about when I use manual focus. So I guess we should just get right into it then, guys. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. So again, welcome guys. It's great to be talking with you after having interacted with you for so long on the MVP community. Well, I'm surprised you're still talking to us. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's really great. I mean, you it, you add so much, and it, I appreciate all of your your words of wisdom and your your sort of friendship and everything that you do on there. It's great. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's been an amazing environment, and uh, it's taught me basically everything I've uh, learned over the past couple of years. That's good to know, Forrest. Thanks. Let's see. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, we, you know we've um, we've we've got a few uh, topics that we're going to talk about. And does either of you want to want to go first, or shall we just jump straight into it? Uh, you know, I can go first, or you you guys can either one of you. Oh, why don't you go first, Martin? Okay, we'll do. So, like I say, I was going to answer a question that I received from a listener, Julian Seidenberg, who is currently doing a PhD in Manchester in the UK. And Julian, Julian had sent me two, uh, two questions, and I'm going to answer one of them. Uh, the second one I'll answer in a podcast uh, within the next few weeks, hopefully. The question was, uh, when and where do you use manual focus? And sort of paraphrasing a little bit on the rest of Julian's question, he goes on to say, all lenses can be manually focused. Do you ever use this feature? For macro work, you'd like to control the focus yourself and also use manual focus to preset the focus uh, to the hyperfocal distance in landscape shots. Are there any uh, other scenarios where manual focus is better? 
Do you use any older lenses that do not have uh, autofocus and therefore have to be, be focused manually? And is there a good technique for manually focusing on uh, fast-moving subjects or when you need to take a picture quickly because of the fleeting moment? And I guess there's about five questions in there, actually, rather than just one. Uh, but to sort of attack them one by one, for starters, the first two statements are exactly right. I use uh, manual focus 95% of the time for my macro work. And basically, uh, with, when I'm using the 100mm macro lens uh, that has autofocus, it, you know, that works very well, I tend to sort of switch to manual and then just sort of turn the focus ring so that um, it goes right down to the shortest possible focus distance and then move the camera in um, until the subject comes into focus. And then I know that I'm at one-to-one -one or life-size. Um, when I'm doing that and I want to be at one-to-one, -one, um, I sometimes use focusing rails to move the camera back and forth. Uh, but my other macro lens, which is an MPE 65mm uh, one to five times life-size lens, that doesn't even have autofocus. So I shoot um, at one mag magnification and move it around on the focusing rails. But I've been into this in previous podcasts, so I'm not going to go into that today. Basically, though, th yes, you're right. And also for shooting hyperfocal distance, yes, I switch to manual um, with the, the little switch on the lens barrel and then set uh, the focus to the distance, you know, using the distance scale on the top of the lens and then just shoot away. So... If you want to li uh, listen to more about that as well, like, like I say, I've spoken about this before, um, so I'm not going to go into details today. It was episode 65 that I, uh, did, I did on hyperfocal distance. So um, just sort of quickly moving through so that until we can get to a more interactive part. Um, do you use any lenses that have autofocus and therefore fo focus uh, you, man uh, what is it? you therefore force you to focus manually? So... Uh, like I say, apart from the um, the, M the MPE uh, macro lens, I have a 24mm TSE. Um, I, I think this is one of the lenses that you're lusting over at the moment, isn't it, Evan? A TSE yep. definitely is, yes. Yep. Uh, I haven't decided <laughs> whether to go for the 24 or 45 or whatever, but um, that macro lens is actually right now on top of my wish list, along with the 1DS, so I'll probably get that first, actually. Ah, okay, that's that's pretty cool. So uh, going back to to answering the question, um, where are we? Do you do you have any older lens? Yeah. So the twenty four millimeter TSE actually doesn't have any autofocus. Um, it probably would be just too difficult to to work that with all of the tilting and shifting that the lens can do. Um, so yes, I use it. I, I do use uh, manual focus there. Uh, the the question goes on: Is there a good technique for manually focusing even on um, fast-moving subjects or to capture a fleeting moment. And I think this is the part that I really had to, to think about. It's not just sort of saying yes or no. I've personally found uh, that the best thing for fast-moving objects is to use the AI or artificial intelligence, I think it is, servo, AI servo, which is, of course, autofocus. So um, like for shooting birds that move, move around pretty quickly, fly overhead, things like that, um, I generally tend to use this mode. And also, you know, you can use single shot autofocus and just sort of keep half pressing and then recomposing. But again, it's autofocus. So I, I really don't. Um, for the first part, I really don't use manual focus. 
Um, to capture a fleeting moment too, I generally tend to use autofocus unless I know exactly where the fleeting moment is going to occur. So, for example, you know, you could, if you were, say, shooting um, people passing by an opening in a in a doorway or something, you could just sort of focus on the pavement at a point where you know the person's going to be and then just wait for that fleeting moment to happen and kind of sort of pre-visualize the shot. Um, so, yes, that's that's one time um, where you could use manual focus and it probably would help. Um, but again, I'm really not sure that I would go that far um, with the autofocus being so fast on on modern lenses. So do you do either Forrest or Evan? Do you have any input on that? Well, one thing, I, I can't remember who told me this, but uh, one thing that's helped me a lot is to use a custom function to remove autofocus away from the shutter button. So when I press uh, a shutter, it, the only thing that happens automatically is exposure if I'm in one of those modes. Yeah, but the actual autofocus, I moved to the... Um, Actually, I don't remember what this button does completely, but I think it's the one that zooms out when you're looking at uh, photos on the LCD. Yeah, it's the okay. uh, FEL button, the exposure lock button. The star oh, okay, on the back. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, I think uh, that helps me a lot. That sounds good. That's a, that's a good... I've never really tried that. I've seen the, the custom function, but I've never really played with it. Yeah, it... Uh, it lets me sort of separate in my mind what I'm doing so that I'll set up the focus first using that uh, button on the back. But mm, then mm. Uh, once I'm there, then I just start shooting away and just, if I'm in a automatic mode, then I'll just be worrying about the exposure at the moment I press the shutter. Mm. Sounds cool. Yeah. Evan, do you, do you have any tips on that? Well, it's interesting because for me... A lot of the photography I do, like uh, portraits, for example, uh, for me, focusing and exposure is sort of one operation. So I'll focus and check the exposure at more mm. or less at the instant when I take the, the picture. Uh, so for me, I haven't tried moving um, the uh, focusing to the back. Um, but uh, coming back to the macro thing, I have the uh, Canon 180mm macro um, with a couple of extension tubes and I find mm. I use it in manual mode as well for the majority of the time. It's like I put it on there for the first time, did the auto exposure thing, switched to manual and I really never looked back. Mm. Yeah, I think I think specifically with um, with manual shots, uh, not manual, with macro shots, I, I really just tend to use it a lot. I I actually um I think there was I need to go back yeah there there was another part of the question here that um, probably is going to be linked to what I was about to say so I'll move I'll move on uh, to the last part of Julian's question which was are there any other scenarios where manual focus is better and what I was just thinking was um, the when when I'm when I'm shooting things like products I don't do a lot of this. Um, usually just for, to show you guys things on the on the podcast. Um, but when I'm shooting uh, like, you know, pro product shots with a, a backdrop and some simple lighting, I generally just drop the camera on a tripod and then switch to, to manual focus and then sort of, you know, focus on the point that I want to have, get it all set up. And then I'll start to just take a few. Um, I don't even look through the finder for a while after that. 
I'll just sort of adjust the lighting and then sort of, uh, you know, trip the shutter with the, uh, the, the remote release and then check it on the L- uh, LCD and then just sort of move things around a little bit. And I'll generally do all of that without even looking through the finder for a while. Mm. So that was the time that I could think where manual focus is better um, apart from the ones that we've already noticed, uh, we've already noted. Well, is there any? Yeah. There is one more, um, and that is in low light situation when your autofocus is unable to determine where to focus. Say you have a low contrast scene in in um, with little light, then you'll yeah. have to switch to manual in order Good. to get the shot yeah. at all. Because if autofocus can't find anything to lock onto, you'll never be able to get the shot at all. Right, good one. Yeah, I've uh, I've been there, um, and that's that's a, a great example. Another another good tip there. And another time that I always switch to manual focus, or at least stop pressing the button on the back, is uh, for mm. panoramas, where you're oh, yeah, yeah, going into manual everything. Yep. So now we're we're proving now that three heads are definitely better than one. <laughs> so yeah, that they're good examples. Yeah. I I do that myself. Great stuff. So do, does anybody have anything else to add on this topic before we move on? You know, one thing that surprised me, um, I haven't yeah. shot many sports, but mm. this past year I did shoot uh, my daughter's school's uh, basketball team, and I was certain that manual focus would be, would be better. But it turned out to be a disaster. I mean, I could hardly save yeah. any of the shots from that uh, <laughs> shoot. And well, uh, so I, I, I would... ended up... Sorry doing automatic on just about all of those. Yeah, I, I was I was thinking to maybe go into this a bit, but I, I wasn't going to do it for the sake of time. But I, but now now I've now I've started off. <laughs> now that um, I, I was no 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 I I was um, what I was gonna what I was thinking was that I was going to briefly mention that you know years ago there was no autofocus right. So people I know that sports photographers and a lot of um, a lot of photographers in in days of old, when nights were bold, um, and you know the you know basically they had to use manual focus, right? So they were probably masters at it, and they could just probably swiss swiss the lens, you know, the focus ring around, and get things spot on without any messing around. But we've been spoiled over the last sort of ten, fifteen years, right, or maybe twenty years. Things have just got so good that we don't even really have to rely on it anymore. Mm. But yeah, coming back I, to I really... coming. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, yeah, one thing um, I did—I haven't really gotten into photography until after the digital revolution, basically, and so mm. I haven't had a lot of exposure to manual focus, and so it is uh, kind of a—I guess—a different paradigm, if I could use that word, uh, mm. where manual focus is sort of the backup just when things don't work. Right. Yeah. That's pretty similar to me. Um, a couple of comments. Um, first of all, when when we're talking about the sports and the autofocus thing, uh, the AI servo function on your camera is is there for a reason, and specifically for sports and stuff like that, to make sure yeah. that you stay in focus. But another yeah. problem with manual focus is that on a 35 millimeter or let alone a crop camera, uh, the viewfinder is so small it's hard to determine when you're actually in focus. I have a focusing screen for my 5D, which helps, but I also have an, an old uh, Mamiya uh, medium format camera, and on a 6x7 frame, determining focus is a lot easier. So I can oh, only okay. imagine what it would be like on a 4x5 
five or let alone an eight by ten, which is huge. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I, I guess that's probably one of the reasons why I, I, I mean, I, I said earlier about the AI servo. For use, I use that a lot for shooting birds when they're flying out, like the, the red crown cranes that I go to, to shoot every so often. When they fly overhead, there's no time to mess around, you know, turning that ring around. And I, I am sure that, that years ago people could have done this, um, but you're probably right that they probably wouldn't have been doing that very successfully with a, a, if, if we'd have all of a sudden taken away, um, you know, part of their, the brightness of their uh, viewfinder by cropping the, uh, the film to 1.6 or 1.5 or something like that, that would have made things a lot worse, a lot more difficult. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. I, that's probably why we just don't even try it very often these days. Yeah, and also um, I wear glasses, and my eyesight with glasses is good, but it puts mm. me just a little bit farther away from the viewfinder. And uh, so yeah. that does make it tougher. Yeah, I can imagine. Okay. So, that, that lots of great points there. Um, I'm glad we are talking about this uh, interactively. So, um, is there anything to add before we move on? Okay. Uh, not for me. Okay, great. So, tell you what, then let's uh, let's move on. Uh, so, let's just go to Forrest. If I if I if I say which one wants to go first, we're probably going to end up waiting again. So, uh, Forrest, do you wanna do you wanna move on to your uh, topic on your your Mac workflow? Uh, sure. Um, I don't know how many Mac users there are uh, on your site. I've noticed, uh, being a moderator of the site, I noticed you can actually see what uh, uh, machines people are using to visit the site. And uh, I've noticed, you know, most of it says Windows XP. Uh, hmm. I also noticed whenever someone visits with a Mac, it doesn't say that. It just says unknown. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> so, but... Um, <laughs> I've noticed there there was more unknowns than I was expecting, so hopefully this will apply to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I suppose the biggest uh, factor in uh, my workflow is speed, because mm. being able to go through all the photos quickly makes me less less aware, I guess, or thinking about during a shoot of how much time it's going to take if I take you know five shots in a row, mm. and so. My basic philosophy is is going through multiple passes, just like probably most people do, going through multiple passes and trying to reduce vastly the number of photos that are involved at each pass. And um, so right now I'm completely laptop-based, and so I can take, uh, using the camera bag courtesy of Lopro and courtesy of you, uh, which mm-hmm. has a laptop slot in it, I just... On most shoots, I'll just bring the laptop with me, and whenever there's a risk or of overflowing the two uh, two gig flashcards that I have, um, I'll just uh, grab the card reader and download it to the local hard drive. And uh, so what I use is the program that comes with macOS. It's this minuscule, tiny little program called Image Capture uh, to download all the RAWs and the Finder which in the Windows world, I've never quite known what to equate it with. I guess the desktop. Um, it will build the uh, thumbnails from those RAWs. And from that, I'll do my initial pass, uh, which is just to get rid of all the ridiculous ones where the subject isn't even in the frame or 
the exposure is completely, completely off or the focus is off. And I'll just run through that real quickly, like no more than oh, maybe a minute to cover, you know, the couple hundred shots. And then from there, once I'm at home, um, I'll start up Aperture. I use, I've been using Apple's Aperture probably for a little more than a year, I would guess, and start doing the import. Um, let's see. The way I have it arranged, because hard drive space is such a issue here, is I, was, I have a 160-gigabyte uh, Seagate portable USB drive, and that's my RAW drive. All my RAWs go on there. So when I do the import, I'll have Aperture copy the files from my local hard drive to this um, uh, portable drive. And the Aperture database will just reference those files right there. And so what that lets me do is I, I can just carry this portable hard drive with me uh, wherever I go and always have uh, all my raw files there. Mm. And let's see... At that stage, uh, Aperture is keeping track of everything, so I go through the next pass, which is to take each photo full screen and just use the arrow keys to move through it. And what I'll do is sort of like the last pass of just getting rid of what I now see as the ridiculous ones, ones where the focus was good enough that I didn't notice it was wrong in the first pass, but now I can see that it's wrong now. And... Uh, at this stage, uh, and how I do it is I just keep my uh, one hand on the arrow keys to go through the photos and the other hand on the ratings keys. And I'll either rate it as a reject, which is the nine key, for all the ones mm. I really don't keep, don't want to keep. And I'm pretty brutal at this stage. I'm, I don't have a lot of uh, emotional attachments to my photos at this stage. So anything that I just don't see me using. I'll just reject it right there. And for the ones that are, you know, maybe I can do something with, I'll rate it one. The ones that are a little better than that, I'll rate it two. And anything that I want to take farther in the workflow, I'll rate it as a three. And I won't rate anything fours or fives at this stage. And this usually, I mean, I was talking to you, Martin, uh, right after coming back from a car race where I had I think it was 741 photos. Hmm. And in about a half an hour through that process, I had it down to about 250. That's good. Yeah. And so then I'll go through the next pass, which is to... Uh, oh, actually, before I go through the next pass, then I go to this uh, automatic uh, album, I guess, which Aperture uses just to collect all the rejects. And at that stage, I'll just delete them all right there. Uh, the next stage, um, I think, is very Aperture-specific, I think. I haven't used Lightroom in a while, so I'm not sure if they added this after the beta period. It's the what I call the stacking pass. Uh, Aperture has this uh, concept of a stack where you can just arbitrarily group photos together. And usually it'll be, you know, if you took five shots of one thing in the hope of getting a good one, um, you would just put all those in a stack. And the stack will have what's called a stack pick, which is the photo that represents the stack. And so, But at this stage, all I'm doing is stacking. 
I'm just looking mm. at all the one, all the photos that are similar to each other, and put them in a stack. And there's also an auto stacking uh, mechanism they have, which is based on how far apart in time the photos are taken. But I almost never use that. Uh, it's for me, it's uh. just better to do it manually. And so at that stage, things are usually compressed a lot. And mm. at that stage, then I'll go through. Uh, in a sense, the final pass, which I call the promotion pass. And what I'll do is any photos that really stand out, I'll give it a four star. And mm. things that really stand out, I'll give a five star, although that has probably happened about twice in the past year. <laughs> and I'll also go through each of the stacks I made and pick the best one in the stack. And usually mm. that involves whatever looks sharpest. Um, but, you know, the usual other factors will get involved here. And um, at the end of that, I'll just have a, usually a pretty small set of photos of all the, you know, fours and five stars, plus all the three stars with the um, the pick of the stack uh, mm-hmm. set as the what I'll see as a thumbnail. And from there, um, anything that I want to take, any further, like display on a website or make a print of, I'll do some basic exposure corrections. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really do, I know a lot of people try to do everything in either Lightroom or Aperture, you know, get all the exposures right, get all the uh, dirt cloned out. Mm-hmm. Um, I usually don't do much beyond the exposure slider, uh, the contrast slider, and maybe the brightness slider. There is a levels section, uh, which is a lot like the uh, the curve section of Lightroom, but I almost never do anything with it. Uh, what I do is just take it into after doing the basic uh, exposure corrections, I'll just take it into Photoshop. Uh, now the problem I had with that, which happened pretty quickly, is running out of uh, disk space for the PSD files. So just recently, I picked up a 300 gigabyte um, FireWire 800 drive. Uh, so now whenever I right-click on a photo to open it up in Photoshop, uh, Aperture will create that photo on that external drive. Now, unfortunately, it's a desktop drive, so I can't carry these with me anywhere. So whenever whatever I have on the road is just my RAWs and my uh, Photoshop files will be missing, unfortunately. Uh, once they start making a terabyte portable drive, I can probably <coughs> go back to the old way of doing things. But that's probably not going to happen for a while. Yeah, about a month. <laughs> right. <laughs> with, the, with the way things are moving. Yeah. Actually, I noticed they finally, I think it was Toshiba, released a 200 gigabyte portable drive. Wow. But I'm just going to fill that up pretty quickly, too. <laughs> and so it, uh, in Photoshop, it's where I'll do most of the cloning and a lot of the, even a lot of the exposure parts of it, whatever I couldn't do quickly in Aperture. Mm. And, um, and from there, it either goes to the web or wherever. Now, I actually, you know, uh, Aperture does have, you know, its own sharpening. But I find I trust Photoshop for just about anything beyond the basics. And so, mm. you know, I'll size it to the final size and sharpen there and um, end up with a, a lot of Photoshop files. And mm-hmm. fortunately, um, 
Aperture does keep your Photoshop files in your stack, and you can make that the stack pick as well. So that all happens pretty, pretty easily. And um, that's basically the gist of it, of uh, my uh, Mac workflow. That's great. There's a few things there that I that I find really interesting. I um, I think it's it's really cool that you can you know because you take your your laptop um, out in the field with you, you can do a lot of that editing um, you know right away. That's that's something that uh, is is really appealing. I, I, I guess it, it's good to get home knowing that you've done part of it. Yeah, and actually, I just went to Lake Tahoe for a couple of days this past week, and. Um, hmm. Did exactly that. Downloaded the pictures right in the cabin, and uh, did the basic editing right there. And mm. yeah, it works really well. Yeah, I I think that you know, I mean I, I don't have a good enough laptop to do that, um, but it, I can really see the benefits of being able to do that. That's cool stuff. Yeah, most of the problem is I only have oh, only have two gigabytes of uh, DRAM and uh. with <laughs> Aperture and Photoshop and. You know, I do a lot of page layout too, so sometimes I have Aperture and Photoshop and Illustrator and InDesign all open at the same time. Wow. And it really starts to slow down with two, giga, two uh, gigabytes. Hmm. So, do you, one, one question. I, um, I was, uh, you know, I'm listening to, to your, you know, you talk about this. Um, it, is Aperture non destructive? You know, if you're working on raw files, does it save them, save the changes in the XML files like, uh, was it XMS? I forget. Like Lightroom does? Uh, yeah, it's basically the same thing. Uh, it doesn't use the sidecar files like right, uh, Lightroom. I guess optionally yeah. does, right? Uh, uh, but it does keep it in its, uh, its own database. <clears throat> this is sort of a... You can actually, and by default, I think, uh, use this database as your monolithic photo database. So all your uh, RAWs yeah. can go in it, all your Photoshop files go in it, and all the... You know, basically the XMS data goes in it as well. But I, that's I right; hoping, it is non-destructive. Ah, that's good. I, I was I was hoping that uh, I'd be able to use Lightroom like that, but I found a like a fifty uh, fifty thousand image cap. As soon as I go over fifty thousand images in Lightroom, it just dies on me. I can't get any. Um, you know, the the instant previews and things that I'm used to now with with the fast machine and, and Lightroom. Um, just goes away, and I'm I'm waiting minutes for each image to show. So I have to I've had to split my library up. Um, yeah, I remember you mentioned that. Yeah, well, what I was what I was going to say about you know when I asked about um, aperture whether aperture is non-destructive or not, I was thinking that a lot of the things that I I mean I don't do a lot of editing on my on my images um, once I get into Photoshop, um, and I, the main thing that I've done has been uh, just dust dust spotting, you know, and Every so often, I'll take um, a couple of images and I'll merge them together to to overcome, you know, in like as, as we as we would have done with um, a neutral grad filter to to darken the sky or something like that. I'll now do that sort of thing in Photoshop. But apart from that, I'm really just using it as an expensive dust spotter. <laughs> so you know, I, and now that I think it was actually Evan, I think it was you that that pointed out to me a, a while, a few a month or so ago, maybe. That the, there is now a decent dust spotter in Lightroom. Yeah. So yeah, what what I I was getting I was get, getting that really sort of around my neck, and I wasn't I wasn't using it properly. Now I, now I know thanks to Evan that you know you just sort of um, 
use your your scroll on your scroll wheel on your mouse and that changes the size of it and then just click it and it'll then go away and find what it thinks um, is the right place uh, to clone from and I was thinking that, that that was going all haywire but it's actually it's just showing you exactly where to do it so it's actually quite a, a lot more intuitive and yeah. what I was going to say sorry yeah yeah and you can also move this horse bot around if it doesn't right, right. one that, that fits you can always move it around yeah, and and I so what I'm finding now is that um, I'm because I want to keep those changes. Um, you know, where, where I dust spotted is actually all saved as well, so I can keep that in a non-destructive thing. Um, and then so later when I come to the only reason I'm not trying to negate your your um, workflow at all, Forrest. What I'm I'm just trying to add a little something here. But what I find is that um, you know when when we work on a raw file. We, we sort of, you know, we do all of the work. In, if we do all of the work in Photoshop, then when your raw processing software is, becomes a little bit better, uh, you know, some point down the road, then, you know, we're going to have to reprocess it from raw, and then we're going to have to do all of that dust spotting again. So I'm thinking that if it can be done in Lightroom and saved in sidecar files, then we'll be able to output a, a raw with all of the dust spotting as well in a year or so's time. And that's why I'm kind of starting to to do more of that in Lightroom. Uh, Martin? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, I would actually like to do more dust spotting in uh, Aperture itself. And it has that mm. tool, but I just find it too awkward to use. Um, yeah, when you, when you click, it just sort of tries to... It looks like it's just sort of trying to merge things from around it together. And it looks mm. very strange. Uh, um, yeah. And you can make it so that it uses a different source. But I just found it too awkward. I think if there was a more intuitive tool in Aperture, I'd do that more. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. One one thing I find is very handy in Lightroom is if I've done dust spotting on one image, I can then select a number of other images and tell Lightroom to sync my settings onto those images. So I can have yeah. the same dust spotting settings right. in a bunch of images. And worst yeah. case, I'll move the sources around a little, but I find that really speeds up the whole process for me. Yeah, I that's one of the other things that, that I think it's it's going to really sort of come into its own when we can do this non-destructively and portably. So, yeah, I agree. Um, I was, uh, well, there were, I made a few notes while you were talking, Forrest. The other thing I guess I was, gonna, I was thinking um, was that stacking, I, I, I know that there's... Um, Something similar to this. I don't know, Evan. Do you know if if we have that in Lightroom? Oh, absolutely, yes. And you can tell it even to stack on uh, a certain uh, time span. So, say, stack all images that were taken within five seconds of each other, for example. Uh, yeah, I've really not got into this at all yet. So maybe I should. I know that you you're big on this, Forrest. You've mentioned it before. So yeah, I'm very big on that. Um, it's good to see Lightroom has that because by the time I sort of left the Lightroom beta program, they still hadn't had that in yet. Um, um, but I did hear, I think it was Jeff Curto was mentioning in one of the focus rings that it had that feature. Okay. So, Evan, did you have anything that you wanted to add on uh, Forrest's topic? Well, my workflow is similar but a bit different to Forrest's. First of all, I don't have a personal laptop. I have a a desktop computer so but I have a fair amount of compact flash so what I do is when I get home I 
convert everything to DNG on import. So that takes away the need for the sidecar file to begin with. Mm. And then what I do is I have a piece of software on my XP machine that automatically copies everything onto an external drive that I have, which has RAID 1 on it. And mm. I tell it, only copy, do not mirror, delete operations. So anything I do to my images on my main work drive will not be replicated onto my backup drive. So I have online backup of all my pictures. Um, I'll need to find some way to actually burn it out to a Blu-ray or something eventually. But I figure when I have my images on three drives, I should be reasonably um, safe. And once I get them into Lightroom, I use what I do is I flag on, or actually you can filter on unflagged items. And then I use the PNX keys on my keyboard to either uh, accept or reject images. And it will filter away anything that has been flagged so that eventually I'll have no images visible. I'll then turn off the flag and in Lightroom delete all rejected images. And I'll go through that a couple of times. And that mm. sort of puts me down to an acceptable number of images. And then I'll start grading them. I'll go through and, and tag anything that's not a complete disaster after I've de deleted. Um, I'll tag those with a one, I'll filter on one and above, then tag reasonably good ones with a two, filter on two, any decent ones with three, and so on. So and eventually I'll have it down to to maybe, as Forrest was saying, um, a couple of fours and maybe, if I'm lucky, one five-star picture, but those are ex real rare exceptions. So it, it's a lot of the same workflow and, and a lot of the same results we seem to end up at. It's just different ways of getting to the same result, really. Yeah, I'm, I'm very similar to, to how you do it, Evan. It's, uh, and, and I guess we're, it's all very similar to, uh, to Forrest as well. So I agree. I think it's good that we, uh, we, you know, we all work out our... Uh, the the, you know, the the way that works the best for us, uh, filtering things so that they they float up a list or disappear altogether, whatever whatever works best for you. It's I think it's 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 a good thing that we've got the tools now to be able to do this. A few years ago, it was a pain to do it. Yeah, I was just now thinking that just a, even a couple of years ago, I mean, all we had just about was iView Media Pro, which I mm. never found anything but awkward. And now I, you know these two tools seem almost identical in a lot of ways yeah yeah i mean the, the i think that we're, we're we're living at the right time to be doing this and we'll probably be looking back in five years thinking geez why how do we use such archaic software <laughs> so anyway um so shall we move on yeah sure, sure. okay so evan you've uh you, you're going to talk about when do you not take the shot yeah, it's, well, it's not any kind of a monologue or rant or anything from my side. It's more a matter of of trying to see the thought, I guess. Um, mm. One of the things I've been f thinking about recently is when do you, as you say, not take the shot? Um, there is an old saying in showbiz that says you should always leave them wanting more. And I guess yeah. it sort of applies to photography as well. Um Sometimes I think, okay, there are a few more shots I would l have liked to take, but no, I'm going to stop now because it gives me, A, it gives me something to go back to, and B, it leaves me with a desire to take more pictures. And I mm. think that's an important one. Um, if you don't, if you're always 
for lack of a better word, fulfilled when you go out taking pictures. I think eventually there is a risk of getting bored with it, to be honest. So, so it's a matter of being a little hungry and a little unfulfilled. Now, you could always start arguing, when is this? I think this is more of a feeling than anything else. Um, there was a comment on the forum that said, uh, this person found that his first and last shots uh, of any session were normally the best ones. It's kind mm. of difficult to remove the middle ones, but uh, it's it's a matter of, I think, stopping when the going is good rather than when you're bored with it. Mm. So I'm curious to hear any thoughts on this. I I totally agree that um, you know the first and the last shot are, are often the best. Well, I, what I what I personally, I mean, I think it's a very interesting philosophy. I uh, I'd like to be able to walk away from a scene more readily, and I'm sure my other half would as well. Uh, you know, would like me to be able to. Um, but I'm I'm pretty terrible. I mean, I, I I generally, if there's still something to shoot and I've still got the time or the energy, then I'll I'll just go ahead and try and bag as much as I can. Right, but doesn't doesn't that leave you with the feeling, you know, been there, done that, when you look back on it, or you come across the same place another time? Well, I, I'd rather what what I'd rather be, me personally, what I'd rather do is walk away with the best shot that I think I could have got, if if I've got it, um, and then if I feel that I don't have it, then th- that'll give me a good reason to go back. Um, but I. I I don't always, you know, there there are lots of places that I want to go go and see, and having paid the money to get there and stuff like that, I I don't save it for later. I can understand what you're saying and your philosophy. I uh, I don't personally, um, you know, walk away if I think that there's a possibility of another right. master well, sort of hiding. Well, I'm not saying you should do this every time, but I think every now and then it's good to sort of stop and, and look at, okay, what am I doing here? Am I just taking pictures to sort of be sure that I've covered everything? Or am I yeah. taking pictures because I genuinely believe I can get a good shot still? I can I can relate to that. I, I think that definitely there comes a time when I'm I'm there and I'm thinking okay so I've I've worked this now I've done what needs to be done I can walk away and I could continue to shoot and I used to shoot a lot more just from the paranoia of of the possibility of another masterpiece so uh, on that you know based on what you just said then yes I mean I I do I I fully agree with that it's it I guess it's when you when you feel you've got what you want um and you know if there's nothing else that you can that you can't improve on it or you know, I, I think the thing that the thing that I'm I'm having a hard time with is um, the thought of leaving something for later. Just you know, th- that that to me is is difficult. Well, I think you'll always be able to get a better shot. I mean, if you stay in a place one hour, you'll get some good shots. If you stay a day, you'll get more good shots. If you stay a week, yeah. you'll get some fantastic shots. Yeah, yeah. So, when do you stop? I guess exactly. We all have, yeah. we all have day jobs to to go to, but. You can always stay a little longer, I guess, but it's a, it's just something I've been thinking about. As I said, I don't have any hard or fast answers to any of this. It's mm. just something to consider, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It's very interesting. Forrest, do you, do you have any, anything to say on that? Yeah, actually, for, I, I guess at my experience level, it's sort of random each time. Um, usually what will 
get me to stop shooting something is this when the light changes enough that I don't really care for the light anymore. Uh -huh. And I know a long time ago, this kind of came up in the forums about do you still shoot even if the light is bad? Mm. And for me, no, absolutely not. If the light is not good, then I just chalk it up to a nice memory or something. Mm. Mm. Um, but other times, you know, I'll just stick around. And, you know, if I, as Evan said, you know, get bored of a subject, if it's still something a subject that I knew I was interested in, I may just stick around and, you know, look at it from different angles and try a couple of test shots and, you know, try a shot without looking through the viewfinder. Oh, and I, I just kind of keep going that way. Absolutely. That's another part of it, I guess. Sometimes you'll hit a slump and, and you need to work your way through it and sort of get back into taking the good shots, so to speak. Yeah, and also this, uh, the low camera angle assignment was an interesting one for me because that's not something I tried very much. And, you know, I take a lot of horse pictures and usually the same horses. And so <laughs> a lot of times I'll be in there in the field and thinking, you know, I've taken every photo that's possible to take of these guys. But um, always something happens that, you know, puts that to rest and the low camera angle assignment was one of them. Because I had never tried just putting my camera on the ground and shooting away. And uh, it gave me a ton of photos that I thought were pretty interesting. Yeah, that's that's good to hear. I, I definitely think that, you know, looking at things with a with a fresh pair of eyes and it is gonna help. And I, and I guess, you know, if you do walk away from a place, even if you go back in exactly the same conditions the next time you go, you're going to be a different person. You know, we all change gradually as as we sort of get older and as we, um, you know, experience different things. So I get, and even just having a better night's sleep or a worse night's sleep is going to probably change your perspective. So there's always going to you're going to probably see a scene differently, even if it's exactly the same scene when you go back. Yeah, absolutely. And to more directly uh, answer Evan's question on this, for me, it. it Typically, is the change of light that uh, stops me um, during a shoot. Mm. I think that I, I, I tend to shoot in, um, you know, in relatively bad light if I think that there's still something can be saved. Um, but once it gets like too dark or or it's you know it, the the sun is just too harsh, then definitely I'll, I'll walk away as well. And you know, I only shoot with a digital Rebel XT. And uh, I find the low-light character characteristics, you know, the the grain characteristics, so to speak, are mm. kind of awful uh, compared uh, to what I've seen with, you know, people with 5Ds. And uh, so if if and when I upgrade my camera body, that's probably going to be one of the big factors. Well, we're all Canon people here, so I think we should try to refrain from uh, talking about the competition, so to speak, because otherwise we could get a <laughs> discussion about grain, which might not be a healthy one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um so let's see how have we exhausted that one? Did you want, does anyone want to say anything else? Okay, sounds like not. So um I guess we can we can start to wrap up where we're sort of in almost at 50 minutes or so. Um but what I was going to do was um another rip off of the Focus Ring podcasts and and sort of ask if anyone has any uh, sort of takeaways, any tips, or just a thought to uh, to leave the listeners with um, before we 
um, call it a day. So let's see. Do you, do you have something for us? Uh, yeah, actually, I wanted to plug a website. Hey, go ahead. Um, I've, I'm on the board of directors for Red Wings Horse Sanctuary, and um, it's located way out of nowhere in California. And it usually gets hotter than it gets even where I live. But um, mm. it's an amazing group of people that I became familiar with a few years ago. And I'm not a horse person. I hope never to be a horse person. But they just do some amazing work with horses that have been beaten or neglected. And, uh, you know, they put in, they put their blood in basically to uh, keep these horses they rescued in good shape. And uh, their website is at www.redwings.org. That's R-E-D-W-I-N-G.org. And it's just an amazing group of people. So if you, uh, I, just, I think I've got that. But if you just ch- uh, send that to me on, on the ch- on the Skype chat, Forrest, I'll put it in the show notes as well. So okay, safe, yeah, safe people noting it down. So that's great. Great sounds like a great cause as well. Um, so Evan, did you have anything else to finish on? Nothing major. Uh, if anyone wants to continue the discussion or tell me I'm an idiot or whatever, uh, they can either reach me on the, your forum or they can go to my website, uh, coldbluenight.com, and uh, check out, uh, give me feedback or whatever. Um, I'm open to discussions about just about anything as long as it's kept civil. Yeah. Okay. Well, if they start calling you an idiot, it's not going to be civil. But but hopefully we can we can uh, prevent that. I I uh, I don't. I've not seen many heated uh, conversations in, in the forum. So hopefully you won't get any of that. Yeah. Um, actually, I've been so amazed about your forum because every other forum I've been in has gotten completely out of hand multiple times. And um, mm. and yours, I've maybe seen it a couple times, and it didn't really even get that far out of hand. I think that it's – I don't know why exactly, uh, but I'm I'm very grateful that it's turned out to be the way it has. And I think it's just because everyone's got a lot of respect for each other um, and don't – you know, the the thing is that the, the more advanced people that um, sort of bless us with their presence have, have not sort of got so far up their own behinds that they, you know, that they feel that they can't sort of uh, help out people that are still on the, on the ladder. Because I think the thing is that we're all still on the learning curve. You know, we're still on that ladder, no matter how good we get or how advanced we get. And it seems like we've attracted a lot of people that um, that feel that way. So you don't get ridiculed for asking silly questions, and you know. And I think that sort of all helps to keep people calm and and sort of professional. It's great though, I'm, and I'm I'm really uh, I'm I'm always very grateful for everyone for that. So uh, I had one last thought that I was going to talk about. Again, it's a little bit long. Give me a minute. Um, I was reading a, a book, a magazine this morning, um, a, a Japanese magazine that I picked up yesterday um, about the uh, the philosophy and the history of the EOS Canon syst- uh, camera system. Um, and in there, there was like a, it started with a passage about a, a chef's knife, and it showed you two pictures of a chef's knife. One was like brand new. One was the the blade was like down to half the size from being uh, sharpened over the, over the years, and it talked about a um, you know how the the ten year old one feels good in your hand, and there was actually a word there that I, a Japanese word that I'd not known I'd not uh, come across before, and 
that that it was the word was tanagokoro and but it was you know it was written in a in a phonetic alphabet so there was no hint in the characters as to what it meant but i'd never heard it and neither had my missus she, you know which is good because she's japanese so we sort of looked it up and it turns out that this word is the same word as the palm of your hand and that's normally said as tenohira which means basically the flat of your hand but the the new word that I'd learned there, the tanagokoro, is basically ta is is te for your hand, and but kokoro is for your mind or your heart. And you'll know this, Forrest, obviously with uh, with your yeah, understanding. Yeah, a lot of Japanese. Japanese songs have that word in it. Right. So so the thing is the um the point I, I wanted to make here today was that this word had been used in a way as like you know you you have feeling in the sort of, you know, the higher sense, not so, not so much the feeling um, in the palm of your hand, uh, not so much the feeling of something as in touch, but feeling as in with your heart or your mind. And it was relating this to how the, the EOS camera system feels in your hand. And I just felt, you know, that it was important. I mean, I often get people email me saying, I'm toiled about this or that camera and I don't know which one to get. What do you think? And one of the first things that I'll tell them is, you know, apart from the technical side, actually try to get to a store and feel it in your hand. Because a lot of the time, you know, people cannot now order things so easily online, you don't even get to touch the equipment before you buy it. But this sort of, this new word, um, and the thought of having feeling as in with your heart or mind in the palm of your hand, um, really just sort of hammered home to me the importance of actually getting your, your gear, picking it up in your hands, and feeling it, but not just with your with the touch, but with your your mind or your heart. And so I'm I'm just going to reiterate the piece of advice that I've given to people a lot of times in email, which is before you buy something, unless you know it's exactly right for what for you, try and get to a store and just feel it. Um, does anybody have anything to add before we finish? Well, adding to what you just said, I think it's important that your equipment or you become so familiar with the, your equipment, it becomes an extension of your mind, and you don't really think about it. Because yeah, it's all about the the shot. It's not about the camera or the equipment you use to get the shot. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, I was talking earlier about uh, using the button on the back for autofocus, and at first it was really awkward. But now, mm. I mean, sometimes I have to stop myself from pushing that button just before taking the <laughs> shot to sort of, you know almost simulate what I had uh, configured away and you know you just do it without thinking about it now cool okay so I guess that's it I get, um, if we've got nothing else to, to talk about we're coming up to so we've got 55 minutes or so here so a nice long show for everybody to enjoy and hopefully everyone will be able to pick up some, some hints or some tips from this and uh, I guess the only thing to, to remain to be saying if, if, unless you guys have got anything else um, and don't pipe up within the next few moments. Um, all, I, all that remains to be said is thanks very much to Forrest and Evan for joining us uh, today, and it's been great talking to you. It's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks a great. lot for setting this up. Not at all. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us. So we'll see you again in the forum very soon. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. I'm already recording, just uh, just in case. So, but I'll, you know, obviously, I won't use this part. Um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm just really keeping trying to practice uh, 
and hopefully if someone says something funny we can use it for the outtakes uh, but so we we have every chance to really screw things up for you don't we absolutely yeah i'll stop recording just for now um just once and i can i can probably do that without killing the session Famous last word. <laughs> but we'll have to give him some stick when he comes back online. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kind of. Well, I almost mentioned him during the broadcast. Right? I was thinking. Oh uh, yeah, okay. We're all we're all on the same wavelength. Trying not yeah. to try not to blame Landon for, yeah. for staying in bed too long this morning. <laughs> <laughs> to be able to abuse him, you need to get your web page back, so you shouldn't be speaking too loudly. Once again, thanks, guys. It's been great talking with you. Okay. Yeah, thank you. All right. Thanks. Cheers, then. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Photocastnetwork.com, your photography resource in the potosphere. Photocastnetwork.com.